And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 4, continuing our study in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and I pray that you would cause me to be a capable messenger of it today. Uh, Loosen my tongue. Help me to speak uh, uh, these things uh, articulately and, and clearly. And by your Holy Spirit, draw us into your word and speak to us each by your Holy Spirit. Comfort us with these words. Challenge us correct us, edify us, exhort us. We pray that you would do all this work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know someone who struggles with a deep sense of self-doubt and who is always struggling with insecurity? A person who is at a root core level insecure. Now, when I, when I say that and I talk about an insecure person, you may immediately think of, well, I know shy people I know people who are afraid to look me in the eye. I know people who would rather not talk to me or, or, or don't have the confidence to speak up for themselves. There's, there's that kind of person. And, you know, the kind of person who's always saying, I'm sorry, even when there's nothing to be sorry for, right? Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And uh, they're not, there's, nothing, there's nothing to apologize for. And that, that is a certain manifestation of it. That's, that's a manifestation of insecurity. But insecure people are not always quiet. They're not always shy. They're not always withdrawn. They don't always go around apologizing. In fact, some very insecure people need to apologize more because they really do have things to confess. Because very often the most belligerent people, the most violent people, the people who seem to be least capable of controlling their tongues, the most openly ungrateful people are the most insecure people. 
They have a profound sense of their own inadequacy deep down, a fear that no one likes them or a fear that everyone is out to get them. And so it turns into this perpetual striving for superiority in order to boost their own self-worth. So they work to undermine you. They work to undermine your sense of security and make you feel insecure yourself. They may brag about their accomplishments, their amazing lifestyle, their incredible job, their wonderful children, all their toys, their, their education. They do this, they brag about these things in order to convince themselves that they really are not worthless as they feel inside. They want you to know what high standards they have and they let you know this by complaining about everything all the time because nothing's ever good enough for me because I have such incredibly high impeccable standards that you'll never measure up, nothing will ever measure up, and that's just what a good person I am because I have these high unattainable standards. But underneath all that bluster, we need to realize that underneath all of that, they are in extremely weak and helpless and afraid. Now, the root causes of this kind of personal insecurity are many. Some folks get it drilled into them by their parents from a very early age. Parents can warp children in these awful ways. And parents tell their children that they're stupid, they're worthless, they're wicked, their, 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 their actions cannot be redeemed or forgiven. Parents can do this. And so, so people go through their lives thinking that they can never measure up. And no matter how many times you tell them that you love them or that you value them, their inferiority complex is bigger than your encouragement. You'll never penetrate it because their inferiority complex is so great. I have an inferiority complex, but not a very good one. Some folks live with an inner perfectionism. They, they set such high standards for themselves and, and they set such high standards for everyone else that they can never achieve these standards. And, and, and so they believe that anything short of perfection is failure. Is that true? Anything short of perfection is failure? Well, this is built in to them and they, they make them and themselves miserable. Uh, they, they make everyone around them miserable in the meantime. Some, some have experienced trauma, a kind of trauma that's destabilized everything in their world and robbed them of any sense of personal security. And so they become aggressive and combative and angry to fight and claw for their place in the world. And of course, it could be any combination of these things. It could be uh, awful parents and trauma and, and a sense of perfectionism. It could be, it could be any of these con combined and any others thrown in. It's, it's so common that all of us have dealt with someone who has exhibited these traits. And I dare say that some of us struggle with insecurities, that some of us struggle with this kind of acute self-doubt about our, our place not only our, our place in the world, but our place in our family, our place in the body of Christ, our place in our, 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 our circles of, of relationships. We struggle with insecurities. But people of God, brothers and sisters, whom I love dearly, I love every one of you absolutely dearly, uh, I want you to know that if you're listening to the scriptures, particularly what we've read over the past several weeks, about our riches in Christ. We've read that Jesus is our environment. Jesus is our stability. Jesus is our identity. And if you are being obedient and growing in Christ, 
those instabilities and those insecurities that you're struggling with are false. They have no basis. They have, they, they have no grounding. There's, there's nothing supporting them. There's no reason for you to feel the way that you do because of what Jesus is and what he's given you as a member of his body. And so as you mature, that feeling of insecurity ought to be diminished. It ought to go away. This is, this is much of what Paul has communicated to these Christians in, in Ephesus. He said, you formerly walked according to the pattern of the world. You were wandering, you were hopeless, you were directionless. But now, he says, you have been raised up together with Christ and you have been seated with him in the heavenlies together with the people whom he is redeeming. And so if you grasp hold of your position in Christ, if you knew your blessings in Jesus, there would be no place for insecurity. Jesus and his body are your security. You belong, you have worth, and you are needed, and you are valued as a member of the body of Christ. Now, apart from him, I can't say that. Apart from him, I can't say you, you have this, this immense worth, because it's, it's our worth only comes from our union with Jesus. And so this far... Paul has shown us our identity and our confidence in Jesus and the the way he's brought us near to God and how he's brought divided humanity together. And now he builds on that and shows us how even more, even further, how our unity together in Jesus brings stability, security, victory, and dominion. The Jesus that you trust with your eternal life is also the Jesus that preserves you today. We, we somehow have this theology where it's all very esoteric and it's um, a, a very kind of this soft mental thing where we think, well, yeah, Jesus is in charge of my eternity, but it's up to me to get through today. When the Jesus who has saved your soul, the Jesus who, who holds your life in uh, his hands also cares about you today in this life right now. And so at this point of the letter, This is when Paul makes the transition from exposition to exhortation, where he talks about, he's making this transition from what God has done to now what we do within this this world that God has created for us. He goes from doctrine to duty, in other words, or uh, to to go back to my title for this series, from mystery to manners. And he's going to talk more about mystery, but but this is how the book is broken up. He's, He's unveiled these mysteries of God's planning and purpose for us in the world. And now he goes to how we're to obey and live and behave inside that world. So let's begin with uh, verse one. We're going to run through the section that I just read, verse one through 16. We're going to make um, a few stops along the way. So Paul begins, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He refers back again to his position as a prisoner. Remember at this point, he's under house arrest in the city of Rome. He's waiting for an opportunity to speak before Caesar. He's been arrested for the preaching of the gospel back in Jerusalem, and now he's awaiting his trial, and he's a prisoner, but he's not saying, woe is me. That's not why he's bringing up the fact that he's a prisoner. He's a living example. He's saying that this is an honor. If you're a prisoner, you're about to be set before kings. And we saw this last week, right? Prisoners get to get, get an audience like Joseph, like Daniel, like Jesus. This is a great promotion uh, for Paul. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We keep seeing that word walk, and it's going to come up some more in this letter. 
Paul is intensely uh, committed to uh, explaining to the Ephesians what their walk is to look like, how they're to conduct themselves, how they carry themselves. We either walk in the pattern of the world, wearing the uniform of the world, or we carry ourselves confidently in our identity in Christ. So he says, work, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What, what is that calling? What is that? Well, it's all the stuff that we read about in the first three chapters. It's our sonship, our possession of these mysteries, the, the riches of Christ, our ascension to the right hand of the Father. All of these are tremendously high privileges. And if you understand your position now, you won't have any trouble being humble and gentle and patient and kind. The kind of people who are not humble and gentle and patient and kind are either not aware of their position in Jesus or they're not confident in that position. Belligerence, feistiness, arrogance, contentiousness, these are all signs of insecurity and immaturity. The insecure person has to protect himself by being belligerent, or at least that's what he feels he needs to do. And this is true in every area of life, in school, at work, in the home. When someone is really trying to impress you, when they're going out of the way to, to explain or make you understand how, how wonderful they are, how great they are, you're dealing with somebody who's insecure. And Paul is writing to say that if you understand these things I've been telling you, that Satan has been cast down, that you have been lifted up, and you know God will do anything for you. He will do exceedingly abundantly all uh, above all that you ask or think. If you knew that, then you wouldn't need to prove anything to anyone. You wouldn't need to prove yourself to anybody. You can afford to be humble and gentle and patient and kind. Only the person who is confident of his position can give grace. If you feel threatened, you can't be gracious or charitable. You, you feel this need to be hypercritical if you feel threatened, right? You need, to, you need to fight back. But you understand anybody, anybody can point out weakness. It doesn't take some super spiritual insight to point out weakness. We, in a fallen world, weakness is all around us. So if you're the kind of person who likes to, you know, go to a restaurant and complain about everything, if you're the kind of person who goes to a, a Walmart and... and I'm describing myself here, and you just notice the dirty floors and the shopping cart with the wheel that won't work and the, the moody person checking you out, and you notice all these things, you need to know that it, it doesn't take any great skill to point out things that are wrong, right? That's, they're everywhere. That, that's everywhere there is weakness. That doesn't require some in, intense spiritual insight to criticize. But the gracious person can find strength the gracious person can see good things and can glory in the beauty of the good things. A gracious person can, seem, can see strength and can esteem others more highly than himself. And out of this comes unity. Humility, gentleness, patience breed unity, not belligerence. In, in Hebrews 6, a well-known passage, you know that patience is the essence of saving faith. The impatient person doesn't understand the faith. But in, in Hebrews 6, we read, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you want to inherit the promises? Yes, you need patience. 
Do you want to inherit everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for you in his death and resurrection? Do you want all of that? You need to be patient. You need to learn how to be long-suffering. That's, that's what he's saying. Do you want all the blessings and riches of Christ? Do you want unity and peace and influence and maturity and glory? Then you must exhibit patience with your spouse. You must exhibit patience with your children, with your brothers and sisters, with, with me. And, and then in Hebrews 6, it goes on, Abraham patiently waited and received the promise, right? The more we grow in faith, the more patient we become. Impatience and belligerence exposes our lack of maturity. It exposes our lack of maturity and it rots out the unity of the church. It kills the fellowship. So see the kind of unity that Paul endorses here. He talks about keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What does that mean? Well, in part, it means giving people time and it means giving people space to make mistakes and to and to show forbearance with one another. It means putting up with other people's eccentricities. Y'all are weird. <laughs> Do you know that? I got one amen. Y'all are weird. And you know what? I'm weird too. I, Paul said, I'm chief of sinners. I'm chief of weirdos. We're all weird. You're weird and I'm weird. And we all have things that irritate other people. We all have things that irritate somebody else. At one time or another, someone will irritate you. Everyone will. There will be something that they want, or there'll be something that they'll say, or there'll be something that will do, or some way that they'll act that will irritate you. And we have to forbear with one another. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love puts up with all kinds of things. Love bears all things. Patience and forbearance, though, uh, engender a kind of unity that is unstoppable. Watch how he sets this up, but we'll continue reading verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Unity is powerful. Back in Genesis chapter 11, you remember that the people declared that they wanted to be united. So they said, let's build us a city whose top reaches into the heavens. Let's, they also said, let's make ourselves a name. And they say, let us not be scattered on the earth. So rather than spreading out across the earth the way that God commanded, God said, God said, fill the earth and subdue it. He, he wanted them to spread out, but they didn't. They wanted to stay in one place. They wanted to camp there, and they wanted to have a city that reached into heaven. They wanted a name, and they wanted to be united on the earth. So the Lord says, well, they're one people, and they all have the same confession. They all have the same ideas. Because they're united in this way now, nothing is going to be impossible for them. They'll be able to do anything that they imagine to do. Anything they put their hearts on, they're going to be able to do with this kind of unity. This kind of unity is powerful. So God said, let's confuse their ideologies so they can't get along. Let's, let's confuse their language. God didn't want them to possess that kind of wicked, rebellious unity. And ever since Babel, the wicked have not been able to get along. They've always been, they've always been divided. They, there's always this confusion when they try to get together. But God does want a proper kind of unity in his church because unity is powerful. At Babel, they wanted a city whose top is in heaven. What do we have? Well, the church is a city and our head is in heaven. The head of our city is in heaven. They wanted essentially ascension to heaven. 
Uh, and that's what we have. We have ascension into heaven with Jesus. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, Paul's already told us in Ephesians that we have a name. We're named by the name of Jesus, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And at Babel, they wanted unity on earth. That's what we've been granted. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, make them one, just as we are one. So if Jesus asked the Father for unity, then we have it. It's ours. The, the Father doesn't deny the Son anything. If Jesus asks that we be one, then we are one. And out of this powerful unity comes the dominion and the glory and the influence that was denied to rebellious mankind at Babel. Now this is given to the church, this, this powerful, unstoppable unity. Now, if we want to have total dominion, if we want to have influence over the earth, we have to have unity. And if we're going to have unity, then we're going to have to learn in small ways, in everyday ways, how to put up with each other's minor faults. Do you want to conquer the world or not? If you do, then you have to have patience, humility, and gentleness. These are not abstract virtues. These are the keys of dominion, <laughs> and they're conducive. They're essential for unity. When people are able to live this way, when people are able to have this this free flow of, oh boy, I messed up, please forgive me. Oh boy, you messed up, I didn't like that, but it, it kind of ruined my day. Oh, I'm so sorry I did that, help me make it right. When you have this charitable listening and this charitable hearing and this, this smooth kind of uh, life and communication together, uh, when you're able to live this way, you have confidence in each other. You stop being suspicious of other people and you learn how to work together. Again, the conspiracies of the wicked don't work because they don't have the Holy Spirit. People are always suspicious of others. And, and also, if, you're, if you are always ripping people off and conniving and sticking it to other people, you assume that everybody else is too. And that's, that's, it's hard to get together and to stick together for very long. They can't hold it together. But our unity is something that we possess already. Now we live like it. Now we, now we fulfill it. We, we grow up into it. And you say, well, it looks like there's nothing but disunity everywhere. Everywhere there's apparent disunity. But we overcome that when we stop acting as if we aren't united as a body, as a church, as Christians. We are one loaf. That is the truth. Now, having said, as Paul says, now having said that we're one, He's not going to deny that there is diversity. You have one and the many. You have unity and diversity. So he's going to go right from our oneness to our diversity of gifts. Verse 7, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Everybody has been given gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. How infinite is the measure of Christ's gifts? Does it ever run out? So, so what is given to each one of us is infinite grace. Infinite grace that has filled us up in all different kinds of ways. And here's the mysterious thing and here's the wonderful thing that, that each of us have infinite grace and yet it comes out of us and it shoots out of us in different ways, in different uh, occupations and vocations and callings and different talents and different skills and, and different gifts, different things that we're able to do that other people aren't able to do. And we rejoice in each other's gifts that, that we don't have. There's something very Trinitarian about the way that the gifts are distributed. And then Paul quotes Psalm 68. He says in verse 8, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. 
It was common in the ancient world for a conqueror to return from the field of battle trailing the conquered enemy behind him, maybe the king or the generals or the, or the people he had conquered in battle to, to lead them back into the city and then to deal with them there if they were to be executed or imprisoned or, or tried there in the, uh, in the city, in the capital city. And of course, in the ancient world, it was usually executed. That's what, that's what, and this happens a few times in the Old Testament where the arch enemies of God are brought back to Jerusalem to be dealt with. So here's this picture. When Jesus ascends to his father, he leads captive a, a host of captives. These are his enemies. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus's victory consists not of killing those he takes captive, but of converting them. They are now worshipers. They were enemies who are now loyal subjects. So we are his captives. We are led captive into heaven. And once we get there, he gives us a crown and he sits us on a throne. Jesus gives gifts to us because he's a confident victor. If you're a confident victor, you can afford to give gifts. If you have security, you can be generous. If you're insecure, then you feel like you can't afford to be generous. But, but Jesus is secure and his humility and his sacrifice is our example. You want to ascend, you want to have dominion, then you have to have humility. You have to be servants of all. And Paul continues, he says in verse 9, now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He's referring to that dissension, he's referring to that uh, the, the themes we talk about every Good Friday, that after Jesus died on the cross, he went to the gates of hell, ripped off the gates and led the Old Testament saints up out of the grave into God's, God's present, uh, presence. So between the crucifixion and resurrection, he descended into the earth. And that's what Paul is referring to here. So he says in verse 10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the one who descends is the one who ascends. And now Paul the prisoner is following his example. He is descending into, into prison, into captivity, so that he may come out the other side in glory. The prisoner is going to get the hearing with the king. The way up is down, is what he is saying. In verse 11, and out of, these, out of this work and, and out of these gifts, verse 11, he, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Who are these various uh, offices and, and what do they do? Apostles and prophets laid the foundation for the church and they spoke with an inspired authority uh, while the New Testament scriptures were being written. In that sense, we don't, we don't have those offices anymore as they were in the New Testament area. Now, in a general sense, we're all apostles and prophets. We are all apostles. We are all apostello. We are sent out with the gospel. We are all prophets, prophetos. We speak forth uh, the words of life. In, in that sense, in a general sense, we are apostles and prophets, and there are people who are specially gifted in those uh, various callings and abilities. So we could use these words freely today to refer to different kinds of people and say, man, that guy's a prophet and, and mean it. And yeah, we know what you're talking about. But there's a special and particular sense in which apostles and prophets wrote the New Testament books and spoke with an authority that we don't see anymore because now the authority is in the book. Now the book is finished and we're ruled by the Bible. The Bible is our authority. Uh, what are evangelists? Those are apostles and prophets. Evangelists maybe are people that we would call missionaries today. 
Paul doesn't stop and give a definition of every one of these. So he's not being super specific. I don't think there are thick, dark lines. I think uh, uh, an evangelist could also be a pastor and a teacher. I think a pastor has to be an evangelist and a teacher. So, so there are some, there's some bleed over, but, but there's a critical role in the church for these evangelists, those gifted to be pioneers, to go break the soil, to go into difficult places and situations with the gospel. And he mentions pastors and teachers, elders in local churches. Some, some have gifts that will be more pastoral. Some will be more gifted teachers. But again, it's all connected. Pastors need to teach, and teaching is pastoral. But why do we have these gifts in the church? Why do we have apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? Why do we have them? For the equipping of the saints to do their work. That's what he says in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry edifying the body of Christ. Well, what is the work of ministry? What is, child of God, what is your work of ministry? Is it when you have a couple hours on a Saturday and you go do something in the name of the church? Maybe you wear a church t-shirt or you're together with church people and that's your work of ministry. Whenever we have an opportunity to serve somebody or do something, well, that's, that's the work of ministry. Is that, is that what it is? No, it's not. Uh, your ministry is all the work of dominion taking and glorifying that you do. Your ministry to your family is, is the, the ministry that he's talking about here. It's a high priority within that. Being a mom and a dad, be loving your children, being a husband and a wife. Your occupation uh, is, your, is your, your work for the kingdom as well. Your job, the one that you go to Monday through Friday, your vocation is one of the primary opportunities that God has given you to love your neighbor to glorify the world and take dominion. And through your faithfulness in your work comes the building up of the body of Christ. Now, there are also things we do outside of that, like visiting the sick, like explaining the gospel, like feeding the hungry, like volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. These things also build up the body and they're the work of ministry. But, but ministry in, in whole, in the, in, the, in the big sense, is bringing the world over into the kingdom of heaven and submitting it to Jesus. And you do that at your job and you do that in your home and you do that wherever you serve. The kingdom of heaven is the realm where Jesus reigns. You are in his kingdom. You have been dragged over from the kingdom of this world and put into the kingdom of heaven. You've been released from the pattern of this world and you've been dropped into the kingdom of heaven. And now when you go out to work, you're going out as an, an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven and you're grabbing and dragging and dropping things from the world into the kingdom of heaven as you you break them down, restructure them, and make them new. That is our work. That is our ministry. And that is what worship and teaching are to equip you to do. And so every Lord's Day, uh, how do you learn how to go out in the world and take a hold of things and break them down and put them back together and make them new? Well, that's what we do in worship every Lord's Day. God has laid his hands on you. He's restructuring you by his word by his sacraments and he's putting you back together and he's putting you out the door as something new that you weren't before you came before his presence. And so your job now that we have done this together is to go do that to the world. Do it in your home, do it in your workplace, do it with your leisure, do it in your neighborhood. Take hold and glorify, take hold and take dominion. Restructure, glorify, make things new. Verse uh, 13. 
until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are supposed to grow up until we reach the stature of Christ. Again, how big is the stature of Christ? Well, it's infinite. We'll never stop growing, which means that eternity won't be boring. Eternity won't be dull. There will always be new things to grow into. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Growth together in union with each other protects us from error. It protects us from getting caught up in every new thing, grabbing onto quirky and weird and and unbiblical ideas. You get crazy ideas and you're highly susceptible to error when you're the only person you bounce your ideas off of. When you're by yourself, you, you, you're, you're, not, you're not going to grow in, uh, in, in great leaps and bounds the way you would together. In fact, you're more susceptible to error. Unity preserves your orthodoxy. It preserves your growth and maturity. Verse 13, but, I'm sorry, 15, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The union of Jesus and his body is always grounded in truth. This was the basis. He says, speaking the truth in love, you may grow up together. And so the unity of the body is always based on truth. We don't base our unity on heresies. We don't tolerate sin. True biblical unity which comes from speaking the truth in love, it nourishes us, it makes us effective, it is edifying for our security and our safety. And, brothers and sisters, child of God, this is all yours. You have been made a new people. You have a name. You have a unity. So then, with the riches of Christ, with having been elevated over creation, seated at the right hand of Jesus as, as he's raised you up together with him, um, why do you still harbor insecurities? You've, you've been given all of this, these infinite riches of Christ, you've been given this. Why does your own inner turmoil still cause you to act out in hateful ways or to isolate yourself from the body? Whether, whether your insecurities cause you to turn inward and live inside yourself, thinking that no one could ever love you, thinking that everyone hates you, or whether it turns you the other direction and cause you to turn outward in destructive, self-promoting, graceless ways, blaming others so you can feel better yourself, why are you so insecure in the first place? It doesn't matter how it manifests itself. Why are you so insecure in the first place? What are you afraid of? What danger are you protecting yourself from? Are you afraid of judgment because of sins you haven't confessed? I mean, that's something that can really make you feel insecure about your position. If, if you feel like, you know, I've got this weight of guilt and I don't know what to do with it. But you know, in one sense, repentance is the easiest thing in the world. It, it, it is something that for some reason we think is so terrifying, the prospect of confession and repentance But it's the easiest thing to do. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I sinned. Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, change me. These are are easy, easy things to do. Confess your sins and you know what? He is faithful and just to forgive you. So if if that's the source of your insecurity, it's easy to deal with. Confess your sins. 
Or, or is it the sins of others? Is it, people have sinned against you and kind of beat you back into a place where you don't feel like you can really uh, uh, engage. You've, you've kind of checked out because of the sins of other people. Well, what are you going to do about that? You don't live the rest of your life in a, in a shell, afraid of your shadow? You can either confront it, confront the sin, confront the sinner, or you can let it go. And in many cases, there have been uh, sins done, uh, committed against us by people who we can no longer connect with because they've either, they're out of the picture or they're, uh, uh, they, they might have passed away. You, you, can't, you can't carry that bitterness with you. That will, that will destroy you. That will eat you up. You've got to let it go in the grace of God and find a way to, to make the adjustments to move on. Commit it to God. Do you, feel like, do you feel like you don't have a place? Is that the source of your insecurity? Like you don't have any companions or friends because you're not good enough for other people? You don't, you don't feel like you don't feel like you're good enough for friendship or you feel like nobody, nobody likes me. I don't, I don't have a place. There was a guy who um, always complained at work that nobody would take him to lunch. Nobody ever invites me to lunch. I said, buddy, who have you invited to lunch? You, know, you sit over there in your cubicle and you stare at the wall, eating your sad little bologna sandwich. What, you want to you go out to lunch? Invite somebody to lunch, man. You do it. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Initiate. Be the one, be, as I tell my kid, be the straw that stirs the drink. <laughs> I know that's a silly expression, but, but be the one who initiates. Nobody hates you. Nobody, nobody's thinking bad about you. You know what the scary thing is? Nobody's really thinking about you at all, right? I mean, that's, if you, if you, if you think, oh, everybody hates me. No, we don't. Because we're not, we're not, we're thinking about our own problems, right? We're not, we're not staying up till two in the morning thinking about your problems. We're thinking about ours. Nobody hates you. If you feel like you don't have a place, you need to initiate. You need to reach out. Don't wait for somebody else to reach out to you. Do you feel like a failure at life? Is that why you're insecure? You've been told that you're a failure and you're worthless. Maybe your parents told you that. Maybe they said you're worthless. You're, you're stupid. Maybe they said that. Maybe you've had somebody tell you that before. Okay, I get it. Failure is painful and the disapproval of others is crushing. We know what it's like. We all know what it's like to feel ineffective. You have failed, possibly, in very real ways. But you serve a sovereign God who says all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So you failed. Okay, well, God knew about it and he's forgiven you. Now move on. Put it back together. Know that God is working out his sovereign purposes. Do you, do you just feel weak and inadequate? Do you feel weak and inadequate? Then guess what? You're just the person we need. You're just the person we're looking for because when we are weak, his grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect through your weakness. Do you feel just insignificant and unimportant? unimportant? Let's, let's hear again what Paul said back in verse uh, four of chapter two. God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Are you insignificant and worthless? 
Do you feel that way after hearing that? Do you still feel that way? Do you feel insignificant and unimportant? Grab hold of the gospel by faith. Pray for the grace and the maturity to kill your insecurities and rise up courageous and strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. You nursing your insecurities are an insult to the riches of Christ. You're nursing your insecurities are preaching a, a, a false gospel to yourself. You're preaching to yourself every day, God only loves perfect people and I'm not perfect, so I'm worthless. Is that right? Is that the gospel? God loves perfect people? Is that, what it, is that what it is? You believe at some root level that you're broken and depraved beyond saving. Is that the gospel? Is that how that works? What verse is that? Can you find that part of the Bible for me? Is that what Jesus said? Show me that. And at the same time, you think you're beyond saving, but you think that somehow you're, you're going to cure yourself or you're going to nurse yourself by your own frustrated fleshly striving. So, child of God, repent of your unjustified insecurities. You are secure. You are stable. That is the truth. You have everything you need in Jesus. Pray on top of that, that that stability breeds forbearance for others and increasing unity in the body of Christ. There can be no unity with a group of neurotic, insecure people. It's impossible. It's impossible to have unity that way. Repent of that insecurity, give it up to Jesus, and now live in unity and faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, great gift to us in your son Jesus, and we pray that we would take hold of him by faith, in the, in the faith that you've given us, by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Eliminate all of our insecurities and stop the mouth of the accuser who tells us that, that we are not, uh, we're, we're not even uh, loved and we're not forgiven. Stop those voices and raise us up in strength and security, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.